Hello and welcome to the Wingnet Travel Podcast with me, James Hammond. Personally, I have been to 50 countries. I've met so many people in my travels that I want to bring them on this podcast and get their story on record. I have plenty of tips and stories to share with you as well. Are you a backpacker or a traveller or gap year student or simply someone who loves to travel? Then this is the podcast for you. Throughout the weeks and months, you'll get many guests and solo episodes where I try to cover all range of subjects within travel. This is a casual and informative travel podcast to inspire you to travel in the future. Do you fancy some bonus content with this episode? Then fear not. If you start to my Patreon today, by going on to www.patreon.com forward slash travel podcast, then you'll find these extra features every week for Monday and Friday's episode. One bonus episode every month, some ad-free content, some early access to episodes, the exclusive added travel must-have feature on every episode, patron shout-out, some ad hoc bonus episodes, you'll get a copy of my digital travel planner which is available on Etsy and you'll get my monthly Winging It Travel podcast magazine. If this takes your fancy, you can sign up for £4, $7.50 Canadian, $6 US a month and I really thank you for supporting the podcast. Hope you enjoy the podcast, thanks for listening and supporting this and I'll see you soon. Cheers James. Let's get into the episode. Hello and welcome to this week's episode. I am joined by solo traveller superstar Vina Murali. Vina has just finished a six-month solo trip around the world, and we're here to talk about that amazing journey today. Vina has also released a free ebook called Far, Wide and Solo, which I've read today, and it's worth a read, so you guys should check it out. So we're going to delve into that, some also other personal travel, and also maybe what's coming in the future. So Vina, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Um, yeah, I'm doing well. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. And where are you based? Can you tell listeners where you're based at the minute? Yeah, so I am based in New York City right now. So I'm in Manhattan. Uh, just moved back here after my big trip that we'll be talking about uh, a couple of weeks ago. So it's nice to be settled and back into a routine again. And which part of Manhattan, may I ask? Uh, I live around Hell's Kitchen. Hell's Kitchen, as in Gordon Ramsay. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like uh, below Central Park, but like kind of above Times Square-ish. Okay, right. Yeah, <laughs> those are like the two major landmarks that people can kind of reference, I guess, because yeah. they're not like, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you obviously got the streets and the avenues, right? I did walk, when I was there for 10 days, I walked everywhere. I didn't get public transport yeah. for some reason. I made part of them a few times to Brooklyn, but yeah, so I walked Manhattan Island a lot. It's, it's quite, it's bigger than you think. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, definitely walking is the best way to get around because you can kind of just witness like how the different neighborhoods change when you walk from like one to the other. And it's just like obviously one of the most walkable cities in the country, too. So Mm. just be like wrong to come here and not like walk or like take the subway around everywhere. And that's definitely like one of my favorite parts of living here, too, because I am not a fan of driving at all. (laughs) Oh, God, no. (laughs) I think I saw on your social media this morning where you like walk in Central Park. That's your like, yes, yeah. like little aim or yeah. little routine. Yeah, so I actually, so I went to NYU, which is a little bit more downtown Manhattan. So this is my first time living kind of closer to Central Park. And I definitely want to take advantage of like the, I guess the space to just walk without, you know, running into a car or something. Because mm. Central Park is definitely like a very special part of New York and Manhattan, where it's just like a huge green space. And I'm like an outdoorsy person, which is a little bit of a hard thing to be in New York. So I definitely (laughs) like to try and take advantage of any sort of like nature, like walking, biking, like 
hiking if you can call it that in new york city (laughs) maybe maybe the high line that's the that's the hiking yeah like a long flat walk as opposed to any (laughs) hike (laughs) but amazing place uh i would highly recommend anyone who's not been to go to new york city you would never Mm -hmm. ever get bored there never yes absolutely and you have been at university here and you moved here after your trip so you've been there for a while then in new york Yeah, so I have lived here for like, I went to, I graduated in three and a half years, but I spent a semester abroad and then was also part of the university classes that was a little like home for COVID for a little bit. So I've Mm. probably lived here for like a total of three years. And then this will be like my, I guess, fourth year going into it. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, you must've been part of that generation who were at university during COVID. Yes. Terrible. Yeah. So we got sent home for like a semester in March of 2020. And I was, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. So I was lucky enough to, you know, be able to go back to my childhood home, but definitely wasn't what I had set, <laughs> what, <laughs> what my, uh, what it looked like when I was submitting my application to NYU my senior year of high school. I definitely didn't imagine that I would be spending so much time in front of just like a computer screen for my college experience. <laughs> It's a real shame because those years are pretty special. Like when you go to university, the first, especially the first two years, they're like getting your feet like on the ground and like you know getting your friends together, going out, doing some crazy mm-hmm. stuff. So, yeah, if, if you're listening and you're that age, I I think it's okay now. But I was hoping that those guys would maybe defer you to get COVID out of the way because you don't want to ruin that experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you grew up in Chicago. Bit of a backstory of yeah, growing up in Chicago. What was travel like when you were young? Yeah, so I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, so pretty much like a suburb in most of the country. Um, And I was lucky enough that my parents definitely did prioritize travel from when I was very young. Like I had a passport when I was like a baby because we used to go to India very often when I was like back when I couldn't even remember. So those were probably like my first instances of international travel was just traveling to India to go visit like my grandparents and whatnot. But um, once I got to maybe like four or five ish, we definitely started traveling across the US going to like, um, it's like national parks or going to like Niagara Falls in Canada and like small things like that. And once I got a little bit older, we also started going to like famous places in Europe. So London, like Paris, Spain. So I was definitely very, very lucky to be able to go on those trips with my parents. And do feel like I traveled uh, more than I guess the average person at like at when, before I got to college. So that definitely did uh, pique my interest in going to a university where I knew I'd be able to study away for at least a semester. And I definitely prioritized that when I was applying and when I chose NYU, which is known to have some of the best study away programs ever. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, US and Canada, they, they do it right with university. There's always like, you know, the semesters that are away. In UK, it's quite, from my experience, it's quite hard to maybe find a university or a course that would do that. I think my, my sister was going to do that for her, her doctorate, but unfortunately COVID came along and that was that. But yeah, you, you guys kind of always like, oh yeah, I went, to, I went to Austria when I was like in my last university. I'm like, oh, how is that even possible? It's amazing. Like, but that's, that is the right way to do it. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely an experience that I would recommend to everyone. And if you're thinking about like applying or something like NYU, um, like 
the university I went to had like what, like 20 or something satellite campuses and you could study wow. at any of them. And it was like super seamless. You would get there, you would stay in a dorm that looked just like the New York City campus dorms and you would have like the same Wi-Fi password. And obviously there are pros and cons to it being that seamless when you're in a foreign <laughs> yeah. country. But when you are like whatever, 19 years old and like leaving the country to live somewhere else for the first time, it does have a bit of comfort uh, and like kind of you have a bit of a community going into it as opposed to just like being dropped in a country and figuring everything out. Yeah. And did you manage to go abroad in your university for a semester? Yes, yeah, so I was lucky enough to go the last semester before COVID happened. So I went in the fall of 2019. So yeah. I had a fully uh, normal, normal study abroad <laughs> semester. I studied in Prague in the Czech Republic and it was absolutely amazing. Uh, definitely where I picked up on the travel bug, which I can elaborate on further as well. But I was yeah. super lucky to have gone before COVID because we were just able to jet off to a different country without thinking about anything like every weekend. And there was no such thing as you needed a test or you need to show vaccination. Like you would literally just pick a place like you could even pick it the night before and just show up there the next day. And it's definitely something we took for granted a lot. And now thinking about like all the planning that I had to do on my trip the past six months versus like this like four months that I spent living there. It's just like completely different. But I'm I'm very lucky to have gone before COVID. Yeah. Yeah, you're super lucky. Those days seem a while ago where you can just casually hop on a plane tomorrow morning and go to Spain because exactly. Europe has such cheap flights and you can really buy them for like $20, $30 that they just don't set out apart from this summer, obviously when everyone's starting to travel again. Mm -hmm. So you've kind of missed the summer's chaos a little bit as well. So that's kind of a good time in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Being a study abroad student is nice because you can go to, I guess, seasonal things that you don't necessarily think to take time off when you're like working so obviously there's like christmas and summer but w since we were there in october we got to go to oktoberfest in munich and yeah, germany chaos, so yeah. all things like that uh definitely it was nice to travel like kind of shoulder season but also be there for some of those more like special events that you probably wouldn't be able to go to otherwise mm. and what were some of the highlights of maybe visiting europe in that time yeah, so I think like Oktoberfest and just being there in the fall, like we were in Paris right when the colors were changing on all the trees and um, the weather was just perfect the entire time. It only really got cold around like late November, December, but by that time you were kind of in the Christmas spirit. So Prague has some of like the cutest, most like vibrant Christmas markets ever. So I was just like, those were like right outside my classroom. So I would just walk outside, we would get like mulled wine between classes <laughs> and like go back. So it was really, really special to just kind of experience Christmas in Europe. Cause yes, Christmas is celebrated in the US, but it kind of takes on a different meaning. I feel like in a lot of European countries or places where religion is a little bit more stronger than it is maybe in New York City for and whatnot. So seeing like the churches all decorated and people going to like mass and stuff, it was just very different to experience like that there and obviously see what they don't celebrate. So I celebrated uh, Thanksgiving in Budapest oh. and you know, no one, no one there's no such no. thing as Thanksgiving in Europe. So yeah. we just my friends and I just went and had like this fancy dinner on like a random Thursday for them. And same with like Halloween. I feel like people know what it is, but it's not like really celebrated. So it was just like kind of funny to see all the different, like for us, it was like, okay, the holidays starts like with Halloween and then Thanksgiving <laughs> yeah. and Christmas. Yeah. It's mostly just Christmas in December. Thanksgiving is, is kind of known in UK because on the news, it's like, oh, LA has got like 
10 hours of traffic with people going home for Thanksgiving. Uh, <laughs> that's the only time you really hear about it because the, the traffic gets mental, right? That's, it just isn't a thing that's celebrated at all. I, I didn't know really much about it until coming to Canada. And it's yeah, still, a, it's still a thing here, but it's in different month to you, I think. It's in October. Mm-hmm. Same thing, right? All the family gets together, big dinner and all that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That was new for me as well. So did you go to anywhere that you maybe thought was maybe one of your favorite places? Like, is there anything that sticks out that is maybe the favorite? Or maybe um, like a bit of a gem? So out of my study abroad semester, I think one of the most underrated places we went, which I feel like is underrated from a an American perspective, but I feel like a lot of Europeans do go there, was Croatia. Oh, yeah. um, I feel like a lot of Americans, they go to Italy and France and things like that, but they just miss Croatia and the Mediterranean, which is such a shame because it is definitely still crowded, but less crowded than those other places. And um, it, it was just really beautiful. And since we went in October, it was like not crowded at all, but still beautiful weather. And we saw the most amazing sunset. And it was just like, so I feel like because I went in with no expectations, it was just such a gem in that way. Um, so I would say Croatia was a, one of the more underrated kind of beachy, like fun, like relaxing destinations. But um, I really loved London as well. It reminded me a little bit of New York, but it's also very different in its own way. And I could definitely, I always say, say that if I could see myself living in one place outside of the US, it would definitely be London. And I would love really? to live there at some point. I really, really enjoyed my time there. I went back or I went twice actually during my semester yeah. um, because there's just so much to do in London. Like you could never get bored. It's kind of like New York City. Yeah. Um, and then... Also Budapest, I feel like is very underrated. It's Mm. like another city that you don't, it's not like the destination for most people, but kind of people swing by if they're around there. But I really thought it had an amazing like food scene, like dining scene and just there's so much history as well as like the river running through the middle of the city is super Mm. beautiful. So I really loved Budapest as well. Nice, I think Budapest is two cities, right? Buda and Pest with the water through the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, shamefully never been or Croatia and I Croatia is definitely worth going even though I've not been I think a lot of people from home would get a car and drive from the top of the coast all the way down to the bottom you can even carry yeah. on into like Albania and stuff like that but yeah that's a pretty decent trip if someone wants to do that yeah yeah it's definitely I feel like less known but like worth doing because I went back to Croatia uh I went back to Zagreb on my last trip like on my kind of six month trip mm. and definitely it's not the same as the coast but still so much to see in terms of like waterfalls and national parks so Croatia is like a very diverse country with like the coastline as well as the history and like the national parks so it's really a hidden gem I feel like at least from an American perspective like I said no that's good that's good uh, I do have tips especially for I do have quite a lot of North American listeners obviously so um, that's great to get that on board and get that mm-hmm. out there obviously COVID come along we all know about COVID we're all bored of it but obviously towards the end of your university time you're starting to think maybe to go on this big six-month trip so where was the what was the thinking was it was there a plan was there maybe an idea when to go or yeah what are you thinking during those last like maybe year of, of university yeah so I feel like I kind of always had some sort of inkling that I would try to graduate early from university. I just never really had a plan for what I wanted to do. Like I thought, yeah, I would travel, but I never really had like a plan for, okay, in six months, I'm going to travel to X amount of continents and do this. So I think, um, and then once COVID happened, 
and then I spent like one or two years with no international travel I think is when my passion for really trying to make my way around the world really really like lit up I was like I really want like I spent so much time thinking about all the places that I wanted to go or could have gone and since something else that I wanted to do during my college career was maybe do another semester abroad, perhaps in Singapore, but that obviously didn't get to happen as well. So I'd been dreaming of Southeast Asia. I'd been missing like Europe from my other trip. And then I'd been researching all these different other like regions of the world that were so under, like, I guess, under visited like Central Asia and I guess the Middle East for like tourists, like tourism reasons. So I feel like my passion to see literally every corner of the world just like strengthened for like the two years that we spent not being able to leave the country. So yeah. I think that's when I kind of knew, like I kind of waited to see, okay, how does the situation look when I do graduate? And when it did seem like, okay, the world is somewhat like open, I kind of prioritized, okay, where is more open versus where is not? And by like the midway point of my trip is when the world was like, I would say much more open than it was when I started out. So I think I got, again, really lucky with the timing and that a lot of the places that I wanted to see were like progressively opening up and that made it easier for me to kind of take on, I guess, more destinations because I also did not plan the entire thing in advance, which I can talk about later as well. But I did leave some flexibility because I knew that different countries would be opening up in different timelines. And I just wanted to keep my options open. Yeah, I want to go two pronged attack with your planning. Let's go to that in a second. But obviously, to go on a pretty big trip, did you have a plan maybe to like work and save money? You're gonna need it, obviously. So was yeah. there a plan for that? <laughs> yeah, so like I said, I always kind of had an inkling that I would graduate early and travel for some period of time. So I have had multiple jobs since high school, college, and I think the biggest bulk of my savings has come from working full time, like four out of five summers for like for the yes, past five that's what years. I did. So yeah. in like full time finance roles, which um, definitely were like a key to me uh, saving up, but also not traveling for two years meant that I up a lot of credit card points that I was able to use on my <laughs> yeah. flights. So Once. like basically all probably like 80% of my flights were you like of my long haul flights were booked through credit card points. So I would say those two were like the main two ways that the trip was funded because I used money to pay for like the hotels and whatever and then mm. mostly used points to pay for my flights. The US is the best country in the world to do that. Um, I think it's called travel hacking is another, another term for mm -hmm. it where <laughs> You do um, accumulate points by getting offers on credit cards and making sure you hit the the conditional rules, and then bam, you got like I don't know fifty thousand points to use. Yeah. Um. I, I do know a few bloggers do do that. Like I think Nomadic Matt has got like a big guide on that. He talks about it quite regularly, and uh, a few other podcasts I've interviewed. But unfortunately, someone like Canada, UK is like not too bad. Canada is not really a thing. So it's quite hard to do. So yeah, you guys are pretty lucky that you can do that because that will save yeah. Yeah, much I needed even money. Yeah, I myself like super, super travel hacker. I just have like a credit card that yeah. racks up pretty good points and has pretty good rewards. And I would say like, I don't really do more work than the average person, but I do just kind of try to be mindful about like the points and always check and compare between points and spending money and whatnot. So it, it, yeah, we're very lucky if you kind of line your cards up right, it's pretty easy to save a lot of money on flights uh, in the US. Yeah, that's the key is just be clever about it. If you can get like new new deals, new offers, use the credit card, get the points. I think there's a way to do it. Um, exactly. That's that true. And before we get to the planning stage before your trip, 
what was your reaction from your family and friends that you're going to go solo on this pretty big trip? <laughs> um, so I'm pretty lucky in that my family is pretty supportive of the fact that I travel solo, especially my parents who, um, for being like Indian American, like immigrant parents, it's not quite common to see people just be like, oh, you're going to Uzbekistan? Okay, like, you know, send us photos, like something like that. So <laughs> I'm very lucky that my parents are supportive in my solo travel. And I traveled solo a little bit across uh, my study abroad semester as well, just like small weekend trips, nothing like, you know, going on a six month trip, but I did go on like small weekend trips to like Milan or Ber Berlin, like alone, which I feel like kind of got them accustomed to to the idea of me solo traveling so they were kind of used to it and i had been talking about this for a while so i think they were kind of like okay like you know you're an adult like you can't you're gonna go like we can't really stop you so they were definitely like i think i guess my family and friends were like supportive but also like kind of unsure like i feel like they thought I might get burnt out or weren't sure like how I would go about things or just like were curious about how going to like some of these places alone as a female would be, which I was also obviously very curious about. So, yeah. um, which is why I went, but I think that, and I write about this in my travel log that a lot of people had safety concerns for me, which were like obviously had a good foundation because they're just looking out for me and these are unfamiliar places, but they were almost always misguided or didn't have any real merit to them because most of the world was much safer than like I would have ever imagined. And I never really came across any situations where I felt like my life was in danger. So um, yeah, I think that's like another one of my big messages about solo female travel is that most of the world is much, much safer than the internet or the news or anything oh, yeah. you see online will tell you. And I think that's something that my family and friends have definitely come to accept as I've like shared my stories with them because as even if they're supportive, they can still be worried. But um, I think just kind of going and seeing, okay, like she was fine and she said everyone was friendly is like kind of like it opens up your mind a little bit. Yeah, I think that's such a key point about not to take what you hear or read on social media and or news as gospel. Frank, who's from Canada, was hitchhiking in uh, Pakistan and also mm -hmm. Afghanistan, which is a bit different. But Pakistan, as, a, as an example, like he was saying that even for like solo males, like white males, he'd probably think, oh, you, you're going to go there. But actually, it's actually all right. Um, for females, it'd be different, maybe. I'm not sure. So I haven't mm -hmm. met anyone who's done that. But on the whole, I think you'd rather hear it from someone who's been there, right? So like, like you said, you've been there to all these countries, you've experienced it. I'd rather hear that than maybe what someone thinks it might be like. Yeah, yeah. I always kind of did do my research before going to places. And even when I read like, oh, you know, keep, keep your guard up, like whatever, like I kept my guard up, but I felt like a lot of the advice that I read online was way, way more cautious than I would have felt if I had just showed up there without reading anything. But yeah. that's not to say, you know, don't do your research before you go. Definitely do and be more cautious than you need to, because as a woman, you just never know. But it's also just a reminder to keep an open mind about where you choose to travel, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of leads on to the planning stage. I know you said earlier that you didn't plan all your trip, but with that in mind, with research, and obviously what you want to do, how much did you plan before and how did you plan? Yeah, so I kind of took on 
a little bit of a rough kind of list of places that I knew I wanted to hit on this trip. So maybe like a list of countries or a list of like experiences that I knew I wanted to do. So that was like hiking in Patagonia, trekking the Himalayas, like things like that were like, okay, I want to do this. And I know I am going to do this. I just don't know at what month or at what point in my trip, because I was still waiting for, you know, um, Nepal to ease some restrictions. And I really, really wanted to go to like Singapore and Malaysia and the Golden Triangle and Southeast Asia. But those countries were just not at all like open for anyone when I started planning my trip in December of 2021. So I was like, okay, let me hold off. I don't want to schedule anything for June in the hopes that these countries open up, which Mm -hmm. they did end up opening up. So what I did was basically I would plan out one month, uh, go, come back, be home for like a week just to decompress and see my family and stuff because as much as solo travel is very empowering you definitely do need to reconnect with your family and stuff and I would just take that week to kind of unpack repack plan my next month go out come back again and kind of do the whole thing so that really helped me keep flexibility in my plans and kind of keep tabs on, you know, where was opening, where were cases high and whatnot. And by the time like April came around, I was able to plan more ahead because things were looking a little bit more normal. And so I was able to plan out like April and May and go for like, like five or six weeks versus just one month. And then my Mm. June trip, I went for like six weeks because that was like my last trip and all these countries were open and didn't need any COVID tests. So there was nothing that I like needed to exactly plan or wait out for. So it definitely got easier as the time went on. But at the beginning, like first two or three months when Omicron was still pretty prevalent, it was definitely a bit of a challenge uh, to plan long trips at once. And it was kind of had to limit how many countries I could go to at a time because country hopping was just really complicated. Yeah, that's another thing that's changed, right? I guess back when I traveled, I'd done six months as country and COVID was never a thing, test mm-hmm. never a thing. Yeah, it's, it's different times now, I think. You do have to maybe do it individually more or you do longer travel where you're not in a rush, which is obviously a dream, but depends on money. Which brings yeah. me to, did you have like a set time? Was six months kind of the maximum or were you thinking maybe I could push it seven, eight months? What was your thinking? <laughs> I would have loved to push it, but my full-time job actually started or I knew that it was going to start in July. So I'm okay. actually like back to normal working life now because <laughs> you had to return to reality at some point. So I knew that I would graduate in December and that I had about six, six and a half months to travel until the start date of my full-time job. So it was always kind of like a set date and I just had to fit in as much as I could within those uh, few months or it was about 180 to like 200 days ish nice that's a, that's a big chunk that's awesome yep. <laughs> and let's get to some of the countries why not so obviously i've got the countries written down here from your book um which i've read um so that's my base and i'd love to ask some questions about some of those countries actually that i've been to and not been to and maybe we can delve into other countries that are not on that list so first on my list is uzbekistan and yes. kyrgyzstan kyrgyzstan yeah yeah and um, these two are cropping up. They're starting to creep into some blogs and people are starting to say how amazing it is. So I'm starting to think now is the time you've, you've gone at the right time. So what was your kind of thoughts traveling Uzbekistan first? Like Samarkand obviously has to be uh, on the list of places to go to. But yeah, what, what was your thinking? Yeah, so 
I didn't know much about Uzbekistan. I had never, like, I had never met anyone who'd gone there. I kind of had just seen, like, articles about it, like, videos about it. And I thought, wow, like, that looks amazing. Like, and kind of because I had spent a semester in Europe kind of going to the Eiffel Tower and Big Ben and stuff, I really wanted to make it a point to see places that I knew I probably wouldn't go back to ever in my life or I knew that I wouldn't get another chance to go to in my life because on like maybe like a four or five day holiday I can easily make it out to London but I'm not sure if I'm going to go to Uzbekistan for four days so I really wanted to make a point to go to places that I didn't think I would get a chance to go back to until much later in my life so that's kind of why I chose Central Asia and it was definitely one of the best decisions I made. Uzbekistan was really, really out of my comfort zone because for the first time I went there and I would see no tourists anywhere, no English anywhere, no one that really looked like me, no one that could kind of cater to what I needed. And the way I went around that was I actually did need to hire like local guides to speak English and kind of take me around some of the places. So in each city, there would be like one local guide who would be able to kind of drive me around to all the different tourist sites and tell me about them because like, there's no real like English signs telling you this is the history of this place. Like you kind of just have to go there and either read the Uzbek or the Russian sign or just look at it. And for me, I obviously, value the history and learning about the history and the culture of a place. I was like, okay, I need to go with a guide. If I'm going to learn any of this stuff, I don't want to just go there and take a photo and leave. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. Um, if you're thinking about going to Central Asia, I would definitely recommend like finding some sort of English speaking guide to help you out because there is zero English spoken there anywhere. So um, it was definitely very out of my comfort zone, but also that made it absolutely one of the most rewarding places that I went to too like some of these sites are like as big as the Taj Mahal or as big as any other like world wonder and there's absolutely no one there like there's you know these uh at the Registan, which is like a very big you know complex in Samarkand there's this big light and music show that takes place in front of this huge kind of complex and I was like one of maybe like 20 people there and it was probably the only foreign tourists there so it's really really magnificent places that are just so not known about which is such a shame but also makes it really special to be there so yeah i would say uzbekistan is very like cultural historical architectural focused whereas kyrgyzstan if you're into mountains you just absolutely have to go there like i feel like it was the perfect juxtaposition to uzbekistan because i went there i went in the winter so i was able to go out to the mountain range right when it had snowed and there was like fresh snow everywhere. And it was probably one of the hardest hikes of my life because we just walked through freshly like corn <laughs> tough, snow tough. the entire time. And I slipped onto my butt like multiple times. Well, yeah. it was one of the most beautiful, beautiful places. And it's kind of different from going to the mountains in a U.S. national park where you need to get like a permit to go in at this time so that it doesn't get too crowded. Like when we were there, it was just like me and the guide that I went with because there's no marked trail. So you need to go with the guide who knows the way or else you are just not going to get out. So yeah, it was a really, really special experience, really extremely beautiful place and countries with some of the most friendly, friendly people that I've ever met, which is such a 
difference from what people expected when I told them that I was going to this region because I feel like just Stan in general kind of has a bad rep, I guess, in the Western world for countries that have obviously unfortunately experienced instability in the past, but mm. has, says nothing about the people of that country itself. So just going to these places and, you know, there's there such like a stereotype against them, I feel. But when I went there, everyone was so, so excited and happy to see a foreigner so welcoming and wanted to share their culture and wanted to see what I thought of their culture. So it was really special uh, to kind of get a little bit more of a local feel as opposed to going somewhere super touristy and not seeing any local people. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that, that kind of reputation. It's wrong because these countries are their own countries within their own right. So like, you know, Tajikistan, which borders Afghanistan is probably a bit more Pashto and uh, quite close to the, to the Afghan country, whereas maybe Kazakhstan is a bit, maybe a bit more Russian. The, and yeah. Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan are kind of different in their own ways. These countries have got their own identity, but because they're not that well-traveled at the minute, I think you're right. It's got that little beauty where it's the unknown a little bit. I think you want that when you travel because there's so many places that we travel to now where you're just either disappointed or you just know anything about it already. So mm -hmm. it's not quite as maybe magical. So yeah, fair play to you going to those countries as well. And I've got a random question. Uh, you mentioned the kindness of the people. In terms of a traveler, what's like staying there? Like, is that just hotels? Is there guest houses? Is there even a hostel? Like what, what did you find was there? Yeah, so I mostly stayed at like local hotels, like local guest houses. So not exactly hostels because there's not really a backpacker community there. Um, but they were just very, very local, kind of locally owned like bed and breakfast or guest houses. And mm. this region of the world is extremely inexpensive if you're traveling on like yeah. the euro or the dollar. Um, so, you know, it's pretty inexpensive to have your own room in a guest house. So what was kind of also like, very out of my comfort zone is like at sometimes I would be like the only guest in these places and obviously like not that I felt like I was in danger it was just like uncomfortable for me because I had never experienced that in my life ever like ever going you know on a trip as a tourist and being the only person <laughs> staying there but every time like every single host definitely made an effort to make me feel like their most special host by like cooking me breakfast or like giving me directions or asking me how my day was and things like that so while it was a little bit unsettling like when i was you know trying to go to sleep at night and stuff like that <laughs> it was always just more in my head than actual danger that was posed to me which was a recurring theme throughout my entire trip is that i always felt like I was making up hypothetical scenarios of the worst case thing that could happen yeah, to me as opposed awesome. to yeah. the realistic danger that I was in, which usually I was not really in any real danger. It was always just nerves getting to my head. Yeah, and no, I think that's slightly natural. It's fine thinking like that. I think even when we travel as couples with our friends, you might think, what's going to happen? I, I do think that's quite natural. You're so lucky that you've got to experience somewhere where you're the only guest. I mean, how many times you travel and do people say, yeah, unless they're like backpacking in Mongolia and saying it a year, like yeah. what, where are you going to find is no tourists. It's quite rare. So that's why the stands are starting to creep up because people are starting to realize, oh shit, you can go there and like, there's no one there. You know, structures the size of Taj Mahal, no one there. I went to Taj Mahal, heaving. <laughs> like, yeah. Impossible to get a photo about that. Yeah, in it. even if you walk in at sunrise at 5 a.m., that's like the same idea that a hundred yeah. people have. Yeah. Go there at sunrise <laughs> for, for a photo. So it's really quite impossible to have yeah. a place to yourself. But if you want something similar, you could always just hop on a flight to Uzbekistan, I suppose. <laughs> that's awesome. Finally, on those two countries, I like to ask this because it's quite 
unusual places to go to any like one dish that you thought was amazing or a drink I guess the traditional kind of drink that they always served with everything was lemon tea and it was like sweet lemon tea I went there in January so it was winter it wasn't freezing but it was still kind of chilly so lemon tea was always so like perfectly like sour and tart and sweet as well and I love drinking tea and they would always refill your cup like no matter even if you said no I'm okay they would always refill your cup as just a sign of hospitality which I really appreciated and I don't know if I can say this is my favorite food but the most unique thing I tried which is a local delicacy in Uzbekistan is horse meat um they actually eat a lot of rice called plov which is kind of similar to like maybe um like a biryani or some sort of like mediterranean rice dish but they eat it with horse meat and you know i'm not really i don't eat that much red meat but because i'm in a country and this is their local delicacy i was like obviously i have to try it so it's very salty and kind of tough but I'm glad I tried it. I just don't think I would try it. I would like order it at a restaurant uh, <laughs> yeah, if yeah. I had the Every option. night. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Back in the UK years ago, okay, I'm talking like maybe seven, eight years ago. It couldn't be longer than that. There was a bit, of a bit of a scandal that they found that a lot of the beef in the supermarkets were actually horse meat. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, so people were eating it right even knowing. Yeah, yeah. That was a big scandal oh. in the UK quite, quite a long wow. time ago. <laughs> So most of us are probably eating it already. So yeah, all good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and let's go on to Saudi Arabia. This piqued my interest because I've got plans to travel there. And I was really keen to see what you wrote in your ebook about your experience there. So how did you find Saudi Arabia? Because it's actually quite new in terms of opening up. But I guess yeah. there's still some reservations maybe with uh, some of the rules and but also equally that is actually more open than you think. So how was your experience there? Yeah, so Um, I I, like I mentioned earlier, my parents are very open minded and supportive, but Saudi Arabia was one of the only places that they were probably not going to let me travel to as a solo female female traveler with, you know, obviously very good reason. The country doesn't exactly have the most pristine record for women's (laughs) rights. So thankfully, I was able to kind of convince my dad to go there for a little bit because he was also very curious about, you know, what is this country like? Because like you mentioned, it has been closed for to tourism for much of much of history like most people don't really know anything about Saudi Arabia as opposed to what you kind of read or see in the news so it's like you know if you get the chance to kind of go see this mysterious almost place like why wouldn't you so I think people do come with the when I told people that I was going to Saudi Arabia everyone kind of had the assumption that it would be this like strict dictatorship like regime with like you know, police everywhere and like women were fully covered. And honestly, that's like kind of the image of in my head that Mm -hmm. I had as well, because when you consume Western news, that is mostly what you are told to believe is that this country is horrible. Like they obviously like rightfully have very real human rights concerns and ethics concerns, but you kind of hear like that kind of also I guess perpetuates the image that their streets are like, you know, police run and like no one can do anything. But for the when I went there, like, yes, the government has very many issues and should not like be uh, definitely shouldn't be like complimented or like said anything uh, like that. But 
the people, the normal people of Saudi Arabia definitely live a much normal, much more familiar looking life that we are used to in the West, as opposed to what we imagine when we think of Saudi Arabia, like a lot of women, for example, in Riyadh, which was the only city I visited. So I can't really talk about more conservative cities where I'm sure it's a very, very different dynamic. We were in the most modern city in Saudi Arabia and women were dressed modestly because it is part of their culture, but they definitely were able to accessorize like and make their outfits their own. And some, I mean, it wasn't like every woman was covering her face and her hair like it was definitely most women because again, that is their culture, but there was definitely some room for freedom in terms of how they wanted to express themselves. And, you know, they were just going to malls and going out to eat with their friends and going to the movies and just doing very, very normal activities that you see people doing in New York, like meeting their friends for brunch, like yeah. things like that. So in that sense, it was much, much more normal looking than I imagined. And when I went to like get a COVID test and things like that, like all the women working there were um, female. So it's not like women were like shut out, like into their homes, like, like not able to do anything. Like that is not what I saw in Riyadh at all, which I feel like is the conception that a lot of people had when I said that I was going there. But in the same sense, there is definitely still progress to be made. Um, a lot of places still have, you know, separate eating areas for women and families as opposed to single males. And when you pray, you're nearly always separated by in terms of gender and men are more often allowed to pray in certain areas that are kind of more spacious and more well-decorated than the ones that women are. And um, I write about this in my travel log, but for me, like I was just standing in line with my dad to pick up food that we had ordered for takeout. And I was tapped and told that I had to go stand in a different area because I'm a woman. And for me, that was like the first time in my life that I had ever experienced something like that. Like, it's like, it was like the equivalent of standing inside McDonald's and being asked to wait at the back of the store because you're a woman instead of waiting with your family member who's at the front. So mm. things like that are the ones that, you know, obviously, the things you hear that are rightfully wrong, like, you know, those are the things that need to be discussed and are still uh, there. It changes still necessary in those areas. So it was definitely, like you said, a juxtaposition versus like based on, yes, life is more normal here than I think, but they still are lacking a lot of privileges that we have in the United States and a lot of other countries have. So it was a country that I learned a lot from in terms of what we have and kind of the conceptions we have of other places as well. A couple of things here as well. We need to give them a chance. Like they're just literally opened up in terms of tourism, but also maybe relaxing some rules. What a couple mm -hmm. of years ago, I think, yeah, they can't be like um, praised too much because they've got some serious issues there, but also it might change. There's a bit of hope there. I think I, I, mm -hmm. I imagine if you spoke to a female Saudi like privately and was like, oh, compared to like four years ago, whatever, it's all right now. And she'll, oh, yeah, it's getting better. She'd probably say, yeah, it's getting much better, right? So there is work to do, but it's, it's a good start. And also on my research for Saudi Arabia, if if people want to go to maybe a bit more liberal city, I think Jeddah in the, in the west, towards the coast, is known to be a little bit more relaxed, um, yeah. where they do push the rules a little bit further there. And you can do like a road trip along the coast. The problem with a road trip in Saudi Arabia is I read that it's, it's got one of the worst driving records in the world. Yeah. 
Did you find it, it as was crazy there in terms of like <laughs> nerve-wracking to drive there? Um, and there's a big culture of like drifting and kind of crazy driving and you know stunt driving, um, which <laughs> is very cool, but also very nerve-wracking. So yes, uh, yeah, I can definitely attest to that. And it was uh, a lot of bad traffic as well, but that's kind of typical in a lot of the Middle East and Asia. Yeah. But yeah, definitely some some interesting driving patterns. <laughs> <laughs> and what was maybe a highlight for you, like maybe something that you saw in Riyadh? Uh, so I think the highlight was uh, we went to this place called the Edge of the World, which is like this big expanse of desert and the only kind of I can compare it to maybe like the Grand Canyon in terms that it's like this big like archaeological sculpture that literally looks like the end of the world like if you it's like a big cliff and if you fall off or take one step you are going to be just falling down into this deep open expanse of desert and it's really really scary but also one of the most remarkable things you will ever see because of just how insanely just big it is but also the fact that it's going out into literally nothing so but what's funny is that to get to this place there's no real road so the road takes you in about two hours and then the last 30 minutes is just off-roading like there's no route there's no road there's no google maps directions you basically just have to drive straight through the desert you just have to know the directions so we were traveling with a guide who was like certified to drive in this area was like you know obviously much safer than like going with like anyone like who had never driven because he drives here every day like this is his job to like take tourists into this area and off-road through this part of the desert so he just like cranked up the music was like drifting through the desert we were like shaking back and forth in the car it was super fun but um also a little bit nerve-wracking but he was definitely had everything under control but I think just seeing uh the sunset over the edge of the world and kind of just to be saying that I was drifting through the Saudi Arabian desert is like one of the highlights um (laughs) definitely a crazy experience and also one of the most like archaeologically beautiful places that I've been to yeah just hearing that my imagination's kind of running wild like of what it seems like because I have no idea like obviously I can obviously probably go into your Instagram and have a look but if I wasn't to do that I'm like oh what what on earth is this place like so that would entice me to go and check it out it sounds pretty yeah. incredible yeah I think it's definitely one of the, like the top kind of things to do outside of Riyadh so if you're in the city it's definitely a really really nice place to spend like half a day going and checking out yeah and how long were you in Saudi Arabia for for that part um so I was a little bit limited by how much time I was able to convince my dad to come. So we were there <laughs> for like four days yeah. uh, just based on his like work schedule. So we only went to Riyadh, but I would love to go back and see Jeddah. And I think tourists are allowed to go to Medina, not Mecca, yes. but I think that would yeah. be a really cool experience as well. Yeah. I think people get to that point and it's like, we can't go any further, but you always read like, oh, I snuck in, but I probably wouldn't risk that. Like just, yeah. go to, <laughs> just maybe see it from afar and that's it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Okay. There was a time when we used to travel the open road and pull into a highway diner and meet fascinating people, hear incredible stories, and learn about new ideas. Now I was taught at a young age that you should always sit at the counter, 
Not only did you meet the most interesting people, but you also got the best service and hottest coffee. Now the open highway brings that concept, not the coffee, the other stuff, to a weekly podcast. Interviews, current events, news, odd stories, and more. I'm your host, Eric Erickson. I'm an author, writer, and journalist, and I've had incredible adventures. And I bring all of those experiences to the show. I know a little bit about everything, and it's just enough to get me into trouble. So join me for The Open Highway, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And let's move on to a country that I have been to that we can compare notes, Argentina. Mm -hmm. Um, I've only been in the north. You've been in the south. You might travel up north as well, but Patagonia, I mean, lots of stuff written about this. Like, What was it actually like going there in the summer, right? Yeah, I went in February, just like the most pristine and protected and incredibly beautiful place that you will ever lay your eyes on. Like I was lucky enough to go and have completely clear weather the entire time that I was there too. So it was perfectly sunny. The water is like crystal blue. The mountains are just absolutely like clear and stunning. And it's seriously just, it doesn't even feel like you are in real life when you're in Patagonia. It's like you've stepped into some sort of like, heaven movie scene national geographic like amalgamation of all those things and it's just absolutely magnificent and it feels like you are just not connected to the rest of the world because you are just so far down south and in such a unique part of the world that you i mean it's like nearly the closest you can get to antarctica from like anywhere else so it is just absolutely amazing i can't even describe in words like it's just impossible to describe unless you go there and see it for yourself. But it definitely turned into one of my favorite places I've ever been in my life. And I didn't get a chance to go to Chile, but it's like already really high on my bucket list to go back and explore that side of Patagonia. Um, but yeah, on the rest of my trip, I actually did go to Buenos Aires and Iguazu up north. But oh, yeah. and nice. those are also equally amazing places, which is yeah. why Argentina is like just one of my favorite countries because every single place that I visited was just incredible. Yeah, pristine place. And how did you travel in Patagonia? Was it obvious of maybe like some of the trekking that you did or the lakes and the, the viewpoints you wanted to go to? Was it quite easy to book on en route or did you book like a tour before you went? Uh, so it's pretty easy to travel independently, I would say. It is not like in Uzbekistan where you can't find English. Like there's plenty of English uh, speakers and there's a lot of like, uh, infrastructure for tourists in terms of like tours and you know guides and uh, stores to rent you know equipment and buses so uh, you can just take a domestic flight from Buenos Aires down either to Ushuaia or El Calafate and then from there you can kind of take buses around to like the different uh, cities and then the trekking routes are very famous and they're very well marked, like it's really impossible to miss them. And if you're going in high season, there's like hundreds of people going to each trekking route. So yeah, I would say like, it's pretty doable. If you do like your research and know what you're trying to get out of your trip, it's pretty easy to travel there independently, um, especially if you stay at like hostels and stuff, you can uh, book stuff through them and ask them for help as well. So yeah, I, I would definitely recommend it to anyone, even if you've like not, uh, been to South America before. This was my first country in South America. And I speak like very, very elementary Spanish from like Mm. my high school days. And I still found it pretty easy to get around. 
did you need to book in advance for like a high season for like accommodation? Uh, so, I mean, I would say yes, like accommodation definitely did book up a little bit early in advance. Uh, so definitely book like at least like a couple weeks in advance. I wasn't okay. booking like out like three or four months in advance. Um, yeah. There was definitely still options available, but kind of depends on, I also stay in like kind of not super luxury accommodation. So if you're looking for something super nice or like glamping or something unique, uh, you probably have to book that a little bit earlier, but uh, definitely a couple weeks in advance uh, is probably necessary. Yeah. Okay. That's great. That's great to know. And Argentina, we've got to talk about uh, wine and food. So oh, obviously Iguazu, I've been there. Amazing waterfalls. Incredible. I had to say that that's 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 one of the highlights in South America when I was there for sure. And the food, did you try? You say you don't eat red meat. I don't eat red meat anymore, but I used to back in the day. Uh, the steaks, incredible, and also empanadas. They're my favorite, one of my favorites as well. Yes, I had both. Um, I did have. I don't like. I said I don't eat that much red meat, but I did have one like really big juicy steak after I finished <laughs> the 15 mile hike in Patagonia. So it was like a full day hike. Um, and I just treated myself to a nice Argentine steak at the end of the day. And it was obviously super, super good. And yeah, but the rest of my diet was like mostly empanadas. I would pack empanadas on the hike with me. I would pack nice. empanadas on the plane rides with me. Like they're just the easiest food to take around, but also are filled with like so many different things. And if you're someone who also like doesn't eat a lot of red meat in Argentina, it's also like the simplest thing to eat for like lunch and dinner. And like, if you don't want to sit down, at a restaurant and things like that. It was like very, very easy to eat empanadas for like every meal. Yeah, that's a dream. For food, that was the biggest thing I found in South America was each country, their own empanadas are just just too good. I do miss them. And one final question for Buenos Aires, did you go dance and do some tango or go out for a few yeah, drinks? So the, day, the days I was there, it was actually raining <laughs> very badly both days. So I was, I was one of the things I really wanted to do was like one of the outdoor like kind of tango demonstrations because I was there yeah. in the summer, but they were all canceled. A lot of stuff was canceled. So, I mean, I love Buenos Aires, but I would love to go back when it's sunny and actually when things are open because a lot, a lot of like the outdoor markets and things like that were just closed. And it was a bummer, but also was probably like somewhat of the universe getting back at me for giving like me <laughs> perfectly clear days in Patagonia. So I guess I can yeah. win uh, all the time. <laughs> yeah. I had a couple of friends who went to Patagonia and it only rained the whole time they're there. So you yeah. got pretty lucky with that, I think. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather have kind of sun when I'm hiking. And then in Buenos Aires, I just went to like some museums and stuff, yeah. in the rain, which I guess it's fine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's go on to Nepal. So behind me is Poon Hill. And the view at, sun, <laughs> at sunrise. So we both on the same trek, the Prune Hill trek on the Annapurna circuit. I think I, mine was five days. Was it five nights or five days? Only because we asked our guide to take us back a different way oh, gotcha. from, from Prune Hill. And he took us through these like back streets, which are like yeah. other hills and like these tiny villages. Uh, interesting chapter in your book. You talk about maybe being alone here. You're right. You don't see many people at all this is like obviously post covid when I, when I was there there was a few people doing the trek there's never like what you described there's always someone there there's always people like about so first of all how did you find maybe like the loneliness in Nepal of like maybe on your own but also the beauty of the nature yeah I mean something that so I lived have lived in New York City for the past x number of years and I am pretty used to kind of going about 
thing doing things alone because you know when you're in a city it's very normal to like read a book in the park alone or you know um just like go out and eat dinner alone if you're like if everyone else is busy or if you're just hungry and you want to get like I don't know a snack alone or like go to a museum alone so I'm very accustomed to doing things alone but I am always alone, but surrounded by other people. So I'm always, you know, in a crowded museum alone or walking the, down New York City, like streets alone, but surrounded by a lot of other people. And this was probably my first encounter with the type of loneliness where you are alone with no one around you. Like you are literally just fully and completely alone, soaking up how there is no one around you and there's only just nature around you. So it was really, really kind of difficult for me mentally and I always tell people when they ask me like oh my god you trekked the Himalayas like was it difficult like yes it was difficult for me not the physical challenge of trekking because I'm like I like to hike and I'm in shape but definitely the mental challenge was the bigger one for me to combat just because like you said I did go pretty soon after uh, Nepal had fully reopened and it was still kind of post-COVID people hadn't had the time to like trek like you know, plan their treks and stuff not and whatnot. So um, it was definitely very limited numbers of people on this uh, certain route and not many people to meet and not, you know, in a place where you can just go out and kind of, you know, go to the next coffee shop or something. Yeah. Like when you're in these little tea houses along the way, like you are just forced to either sit there and talk to the person next to you and or like, you know, relax or if you're on your own, you're kind of forced to sit there and sit with your thoughts and figure out, okay, what am I going to do when I'm just alone with nothing to do, no one to talk to. And it was a really, really different kind of unsettling type of loneliness for me to encounter. It was something that I'd never had to face before. I always find myself being occupied by things to do. And if I'm bored, I'll, you know, go out and do something or phone a friend. And I was in a different time zones and with really weak wi-fi so that wasn't really an option as well so I really found comfort in just reading and that was like <laughs> yeah. the only way to kind of occupy my mind and I wish I could say that I like you know came to some sort of meditative state where I was just able to sit with my thoughts in the nature but that I mean that didn't happen I was still very uncomfortable with the idea of just sitting with my thoughts in the middle of nowhere so my book was really the only thing that got me through like the boredom and the alone likeness that was consuming my four day trek. Um, but again, I'm still obviously extremely, extremely glad that I did it. Like I will always say doing something alone is better than not doing it at all. And it yeah. was definitely one of the most empowering things that I've done. And just to be able to see the freaking like Himalayas and like the sunrise over Poon Hill and be in Nepal and experience the culture of like staying in tea houses was just absolutely amazing I would totally do it again it was just like a very new experience I feel like for me to encounter yeah brilliant experience especially that sunrise at Poon Hill makes yes. the trek worth it it was, it was a bit of a tough trek like for me physically but there was a group of us doing it so a bit different to your trek in terms of like a lot of people mm -hmm. like the Poon Hill when you got that 360 view of the Himalayas in yeah. bloody hell I mean is anything better I don't I don't think there is yeah, when you're like walking up with your lights at like 5 a.m., yeah. you can kind of see the glimmer of like snow caps. 
kind of showing, but you can't see everything yet. And then when you're at the top and you just kind of see everything, it's like, okay, wow, this was absolutely worth it. It's giving me the shivers just thinking about it. I've got pimples on my arms. (laughs) (laughs) And I love the, I don't know if it was there when you were there, that there's like a little van selling like coffees and stuff. I thought, oh, dream, get a coffee. Because you do leave pretty early and just sit there and watch the sunrise and then, oh. I don't think I've had many better experiences traveling than that. I think it was up there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like everyone's kind of marveling at the same thing and you're kind of just all there together. Like even if you're not talking, it's like a very collective experience to be at like the top of Punil with everyone else kind of watching the same sun rise over the Himalayas. You mentioned in your passage there about Dalbat, my favorite Mm -hmm. dish that I've experienced so far. I think yeah. on my travels, I love Dalbat. It's their national dish, I think. They eat it all the time. And I'd imagine you loved it as well. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. The food in Nepal was really, really, like, it was a little bit of, like, the Indian influence that I've, like, grown up eating every day, but also very different um, in terms of, like, the noodles and kind of momos and dumplings. So, yes, um, but I, I really loved the food, uh, like, having, like, a hot plate of Delbat after a long day of checking. There's, like, no better feeling. And just the cultural experience of the trek, I feel like people kind of overlook the fact that trekking in the Himalayas is very much an experience to learn about Nepali culture as well yes. as just being the mountains. So, um, for people who don't know, you kind of stay with local families in these guest houses that they operate and they cook dinner and they cook lunch and cook breakfast for you. And it's like very traditional Nepali food. And you kind of see, um, I mean, you're basically staying with a family in like the guest house that they live in. So it's a very, very unique, local, authentic experience. And you get to feel uh, very immersed in like the culture of you know, being in rural Nepal in the in the mountains and whatnot. So yeah, it's definitely um the food was definitely one of the best parts. Yeah. Garth Poon Hill, one of our favorite parts was we did stay in a hotel which overlooked the mount uh yeah, I guess they're like small mountains. And there's literally no one in this hotel, this guest house that's huge. Like probably fit like hundred people in it, but there's only mm-hmm. us four and another I think a German couple of German guys, I think but one was trying to ring in Kathmandu, he had some problem with insurance. I think he lost some luggage, whatever. So he, they didn't really get into it. But it's just us four sitting there, like like, like my background here, just watching the sunset and just having the tea and eating dal bat. I mean, dreamy. There's one thing you did say in there, which there's one thing in the pool which is not great, and it's the roads. Bloody <laughs> hell. Like going 200 kilometers could take 10 hours. Yes. It really is character building, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah you, you experienced that like, as well. I think yeah. that I- I mentioned earlier that I like never feared for my life, but if I ever got close, it was on the roads in Nepal. I (laughs) honestly like thought I was on the brink of death going around some of those like turns and with the, the local drivers are not known for like their cautiousness or their safety (laughs) either. And obviously there's no rules in Nepal. So it's not even like they're not following the rules. There's just kind of no rhyme or reason to the way that traffic works so (laughs) it's fine on a normal road but when you're on a road that's curving around the Kathmandu Valley and it has no barriers (laughs) (laughs) you're just kind of looking off the edge and uh, like onto like this big river like this big ditch and you can even see some cars that have like met their fate in those like off those cliffs it's very uh yeah like you said character building for sure 
Yep, and my friend is one of those. I'm just trying to find the episode. Yeah, my friend's was on a bus in the pool and the brakes uh, failed and he went over the edge. And luckily there was a, a group of trees that held the bus together. Uh, episode 57, if people want to check it out for a story of that. Because I asked him how many times have you nearly faced death and he said uh, three and one of those. I think two was in the pool and one of those was that bus ride and <laughs> oh my bus crash, yeah. And he sent me photos at the time. I was like, what's going on? He goes, yeah, my bus has crashed over the edge. I was like, what do you mean over the edge? Goes, over the cliff, gone. I said, how have you survived? He goes, well, it was caught by trees. And they <laughs> apparently, he said they got the crane, got the bus back off, back out of the, the trees, onto the road, fixed the brakes, fixed it, and carried on. And he was like, what are we doing? <laughs> like, yeah, so, yeah, he, <laughs> unbelievable. Unbelievable. So if you want to check out uh, a bit more of that story, yeah, it's episode 57. But yeah, Nepal has got some serious road issues, if you like. Someone said to me, you know, if if their government was, wasn't as corrupt, they'd be like Switzerland, right? They'd be driving around in, in pristine roads because Switzerland's got roads in the mountains. Someone said that. And the only road I experienced that, that was really good, this is amazing to talk about roads. If you go to Chitwan in the south, uh, mm. the road to Chitwan is pretty decent. Okay. Uh, proper paved roads, so there's no, no qualms going there. But anywhere else was like, oh, God. Yeah, <laughs> I feel you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, going to combine... Two countries here doing area, Southeast Asia, of course, got to go there. It's a must do for any traveler. Uh, what are some of your favorite spots in Southeast Asia? Um, so I think Malaysia was one of my favorite countries in Southeast Asia. It was, again, a place that I didn't go into with any expectations. And those were the places that obviously I ended up, ended up just loving the most on all my trips. But just something about the diversity of Kuala Lumpur and the the fact that, you know, people, I feel like overlook Kuala Lumpur because there's nothing big and huge to see there. It's not like you're going to see Reap to see Edgar Water. It's not yeah. like you're going to, you know, Chiang Mai to see the temples. There's nothing extremely, extremely famous on a world scale in Kuala Lumpur. But what is special about it is just experiencing the different, you know, street markets and the different temples, whether it be like Buddhist temples or Hindu temples or, you know, mosques, because there are, you know, three different, like big, you know, ethnic groups living there, like Malays, Chinese and Indians. So just seeing how diverse it is and experiencing the food and the markets and just like the buzz of the city was like one of my favorite places. And um, I really loved Batu Caves as well, which is like right yeah. outside the city. It's a really, really magnificent uh, Morgan Hindu temple. It's super colorful. And I also went to Malacca, which is also outside of Kuala Lumpur. It's like two hours south, but it's like a uh, colonial city with, again, amazing food, really, really um, cool architecture. And it's just like a nice place to kind of hang around. Again, there's nothing like it's not like you're going there to specifically do something, but it's just kind of absorbing the atmosphere and kind of seeing what the culture is like and I feel like that was um that made Malaysia really special I loved Indonesia as well I feel like so Indonesia was my first place where I went scuba diving and I absolutely yeah. fell in love with it um just the water in Indonesia I went to Bali um and just the water everywhere is just like not everywhere but like on the east coast and around some of the islands is just like pristine like the bluest waters that you have ever seen and um they have some really really incredible nature out in indonesia and i definitely want to go and visit more of the islands there yeah i loved halong bay in vietnam oh um, yeah dreamy through there is just amazing um and in cambodia 
you know, Angkor Wat can't be missed. Uh, the sunrise over there, which I actually spent my 22nd birthday nice. um, at Angkor Wat, which was really special. Great. Um, and again, you know, one of the most spectacular temple complexes in the world. So yeah. there's so much to be seen in Southeast Asia. It is very accessible to tourists, um, you know, English everywhere, not everywhere, but English speakers in tourist regions, you can pretty much find pretty easily tons of hostels, huge backpacker community everywhere. Jeez. So it's really, I feel like people think it's more inaccessible than it is. Once you get there, you do realize oh my god there are a lot of tourists here so a lot. Um, yeah. definitely like if anyone is like thinking of these places and thinking oh my god they look amazing but they're so far away like yes it's kind of hard to get out there but once you make it out there it's super inexpensive super accessible and so much to see yeah you're absolutely right southeast asia for anyone listening is maybe if you want an area just to dip your toes and maybe feel what it's like to either go solo backpacking or just maybe with a friend or as a couple or maybe first time in Asia, it's a nice place to go. There's a lot of backpackers there. They all do the same route. I either go east and up or yep. go west and come back round. Uh, I've done it twice and both experiences were amazing. Mm -hmm. And it's got everything. If you're there to party and maybe be a bit more hedonistic, yeah, a lot of things to go and see and do. If you want to go and see maybe a bit more traveler type stuff, sights, sounds, that's definitely there as well. So yes. um, I would implore like someone like, Indonesia, there's so many islands, maybe to go explore and something other than Bali. I wasn't a huge fan of Bali. I think you mentioned Bali in your book about the incessant um, like digital creators, whatever they are, social media influencers, like trying yeah. to get that photo or trying to do a drone footage, whatever. I, yeah. I'd imagine when I when I was there, that was not really a thing. I just felt like the locals were not maybe as nice, but I think now it's probably community of, I think we call them like expat social yeah. media people. It's probably a bit yeah. overwhelming. There's definitely a bit, if you stay in the super touristy areas, like, Changu and whatnot it's mm. definitely a little bit excessive but I feel like once you kind of take the excursions out to like the actual na like natural sites like the diving and the snorkeling yeah. things like that like yes they're still extremely crowded but I feel like maybe it's wrong to kind of <laughs> dock Indonesia down for the incredible beauty that they do have just because some of the tourists there are a bit obnoxious yeah and I imagine all the other islands that are not Bali are incredible and way less touristy yeah. and imagine Yes, um, yes, because like, Bali gets a lot of coverage. It's, it's well yeah. written about. Um, even Lombok next door is probably worth going to. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, Southeast Asia, brilliant. Always love it. It's always one of those places. Even if I was going traveling tomorrow, I was like, oh, but you've got to go to Southeast Asia. I'm like, yeah, let's go. I've done it twice. I'm yeah. just, going, just going to do it again. <laughs> like, it, it'd never be a no. Yeah. <laughs> Anywhere in, in that region, maybe next time that you may miss this time that you want to go to. I would really love to go to the Philippines. Uh, it was yeah. just, I was trying to include it, but it just got too logistically complicated. And, but it looks really, really just, you know, all the waters and the beaches look incredible. Um, and then also Laos is really high on my bucket list. Oh yeah, um, must be. Yeah. I have just heard so many good things about it and about it being super underrated, which is obviously the type of place that I would love to see. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and honestly, just going back to the countries that I went to, like I would love to go to the different islands of Indonesia um, and then maybe more of Malaysia if possible, because I did only go and spend uh, most of my time between Kuala Lumpur and Malacca. So yeah, yeah, there, like you said, there's always more to go back for. Absolutely. Borneo is probably a decent place to go. Yeah. You, you can yeah. cross the border from Indonesia to Malaysia, right? Yep. Uh, we went to Malaysian side, but I desperately want to go back to the Indonesian side. So 
that could be a good trip for people listening as well. Um, kind of gets forgotten about down there, but amazing place. Yeah. Okay, oh, I've got to ask in that region, I was going to ask later, but I'm going to do it now. Top three favorite dishes that you had in Southeast Asia? Okay, um, just uh, they have this dish in a lot of different countries, but just like roti in general, like having yeah. roti and banana or like roti and egg. Uh, they have it in Malaysia, they have it in Thailand. They have a lot, like, a lot of places with their own kind of local flair. I probably ate way too many rotis at <laughs> <throughout laughs> my time. And then second, probably mango sticky rice. Of course, uh, classic. Just, the mangoes are just to die for. Like you can't find mangoes like that literally <laughs> anywhere else in the world. I really, really liked Indonesian food, like uh, nasi, or, sorry, nasi goreng or yeah. meat goreng. I'm like confusing it with Malaysian food, but. Uh, just like the rice and the noodles and I, re- I really like the food in Indonesia so I feel like a lot of people go to Indonesia and like or go to Bali and just kind of neglect the local food uh, brunch, because there yeah. are a lot Poached of eggs and avocado yeah <laughs> yeah you know which I was definitely guilty of doing too because there we is were. a lot of <laughs> yeah. really fresh food but definitely tried to balance between the cute kind of like you know aesthetic cafes but also like the local food yeah Absolutely. For Southeast Asia as well, I think you mentioned very briefly before we move on, Bangkok was a bit of a place where you're like, whoa, what's going on? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I felt exactly the same thing. That's the first place I landed when I was 23. Uh, and that's the first time outside of Western countries, right? I was like, bam, what on earth is this smell, busyness, <laughs> taste, uh, getting ripped off. I speak a bit of English, like what is going on? That's my impression. What was yours? Yeah, so... I generally don't have, I really enjoy visiting cities. Like I live in New York City, which is, I mean, pretty overwhelming to a lot of people that visit. And I find it perfectly fine. And I love like Istanbul and Mm. other cities that people generally find overwhelming. So I wasn't expect like when everyone told me, oh my God, like Bangkok is like a beast, like be ready. I was just like, oh, like, you know, like people say that about a lot of places. Like I think it will be fine. But when I got there, I was like, wow, this is like a different animal. Like, (laughs) I guess my first kind of instinct that this was going to be a bit of a different city experience was the public transit system. I love taking public transit and I do really enjoy figuring out kind of how it works and like the, I guess, nooks and crannies of it in different countries. But in Bangkok, it took so long for me to figure out why there was an MRT or why why there was a BTS and why they were going in different directions and kind of why the lines were going like multiple directions. (laughs) I was just so confused by the public transit system. And that was like a mess for me to get anywhere like as like just in general, because obviously Bangkok is huge as well. Like it's not walkable. Oh, yeah. You need to take public transit or a taxi. And taxis for me, like, yes, Southeast Asia is cheap, but it's not really economical as a solo traveler. So I do try to take public transit. And it was very, very difficult to figure out in uh, Bangkok. But eventually I did get the hang of it. But I guess the other thing that made it really brutal was that I went in June, which, again, was probably not the best time to go. But it was just when things happened to open up in my, you know, I was waiting for Southeast Asia to open up and it opened up in June. And you know, it's not the best time to go weather wise, but I was just like, okay, whatever, yeah. I have to go. I don't have much time left. And the weather was just absolutely brutal the entire time I was there, yeah. like 105, like yeah. with humidity. And 
it was just so brutal to do anything throughout the day. And I am like, I was in, you know, Malaysia and Vietnam and there was still like 96, you know, but I was able to kind of make it through like with a lot of like hydration, but like Bangkok, I just could not even walk around without just like dripping sweat and feeling like I needed to go inside at some point or the other. And yeah, it's just the traffic is also really overwhelming and just trying to like hail a cab and go places <laughs> and trying to figure out what to eat. But, you know, obviously there are a lot of incredible options, but I also am a bit cautious of what I eat when I'm traveling because mm-hmm. I don't want to end up, you know, feeling sick or anything. I have had yeah. a bad travel or not travel, but just a bad food poisoning experience last year where I ended up in the hospital with food poisoning and I was like I don't want to ever repeat that ever (laughs) again so I was definitely very cautious on my trip and it was like just hard to figure out what to or not to eat without like like I want to eat local food but I also don't want to be sick and it's just a lot of different decisions of okay how do I get to this part of the city without being stuck in traffic for like you know an hour it was just a lot of just things going on yeah, and a lot of in the senses made and I kind of just wanted to be like on autopilot and like not worry about things but that's like impossible to do there so definitely if you're not a city person um I would say this is the opinion of someone who is a city person uh, it is an overwhelming place no matter what you think so yeah I mean it's obviously still you like have to go there when you are oh, in yeah. Thailand can't miss it like it is absolutely a critical part of seeing Thai culture and like the way of life for a lot of Thai people and it is just a lot and honestly that's what makes it Bangkok as well like it wouldn't be it without everything going on and that's like part of experiencing it as well so it was definitely just like a shock for me and maybe visit in December if you can too (laughs) okay a few maybe tips for listeners here from my experience is uh, yeah, go start or end of the year. Probably a good maybe way of doing it. Maybe not June like Vina did do. Yeah. Um, you're going to be in a lot of like hot weather. And also in Bangkok, I would recommend the public boat. It's got an orange flag. Now the problem is, like you said, it's crazy. So you can and you will probably get approached like, oh, private boat. I can take you on the boat. You can't really fall for it. You need to carry on down to the river. Mm-hmm. Orange boat that takes you long the main river in Bangkok and you can get off at various stops, which goes to like the grand palace and stuff like that. That's what I learned there. And um, we did get scammed, but we had to get scammed to learn that. So I will pass yeah. that on. I feel like uh, it's inevitable. If you look different from the local people that you will get scammed. Yeah. In Southeast Asia, and it's like, doesn't end up being too big of a deal. Cause everything again on the dollar or the euro Super or the cheap. pound is pretty inexpensive, but it's just like, I feel like it's like part of the rite of passage Southeast Asia backpacking trip is like to get scammed somewhere. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's happened a few times. Yeah, yeah. And I think the food, I, I don't know what your rule is. I kind of nowadays, I'd stick to veg, vegetarian meals. Yeah. I'd eat meat, like white meat, maybe in a bit more of establishment. Maybe it's like a bit more of a restaurant. But, mm. like, you know, street food on the market, I'd probably stick to vegetarian and hope for the best. Yeah. I think what's also nice is that Southeast Asia has enough of like a big street food culture that yeah. you can actually find like tourist approved street food places. So you yeah, can see places that other, you know, Good Western point. stomachs have gone to su- successfully. <laughs> and I'll do a little bit of research and see, okay, this place has been like frequented by a lot of tourists who, you know, aren't, you know, don't have the same stomach 
strength. So yeah, yeah, I'm like, okay, same. like if these people were fine, I'll probably be fine and I'll kind of take the risk there. But again, if it's like something more daring, like seafood, I'll probably just stick to like some sort of like local restaurant as opposed to like a street food stand. Yeah. And it's probably, it's probably been blogged about because it's quite a vloggable country, Thailand. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, let's move on to Georgia, maybe the last country slash area we're going to talk about. Again, it is a state in the US. We know that. It's also a country in Europe. And it's creeping up my list because I hear so many people talking about it. So what was your experience in Georgia? Maybe you can tell us maybe where it is because some people might not know. Yeah, so it is right next to uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan in the Caucasus Mountains, so south of Russia as well. So it's kind of on the border between uh, Europe and Asia, kind of bordering like Central Asia. So the reason that I chose to go to Georgia is actually because I, in my last New York City apartment, I lived down the block from a Georgian restaurant and they had some oh. of the best cuisine like ever like think like just bread and cheese and dumplings and like everything that's bad for you but like tastes <laughs> amazing and I was like okay like I need to make it to Georgia one day and try this food in person because it's just incredible so I mean that was like my main motivation for going I guess it's like okay like I've kind of had this exposure to Georgian culture so might as well go check it out and it was like very I guess modern and European feeling because it is kind of on the border between Europe and Asia. So I didn't really know what to expect if it was going to be more like the Central Asian countries mm. that I went to or more like the Eastern European countries that I went to. And it was definitely more Eastern European, had a lot of Russian influence, a lot of people speaking Russian, but again, like the pedestrian streets and like, you know, like the shopping and everything was like very much uh, like European culture and same with like food and the terms of like the culture of wine and things like that is like very very european so i definitely feel like it is a place that is very accessible to tourists there were actually quite a few tourists when i went even in january and just because people don't know about it i don't it doesn't equate to you know not having tourists and there were a lot of people there and i definitely think it's a place that more people should add to their itineraries and i think more people are adding to their itineraries yep. nowadays um there's a lot to see in georgia for i mean tbilisi has some amazing churches and it's just like a fun beautiful city to be in and then you can go out to the mountains which are amazing there's amazing skiing there I believe and then Georgia is known for its wine like Georgian wine is amazing and you can go out and go visit the wine region as well and there's a lot of different things to see you can even like drive down to Armenia if you wanted to so there's a lot of different uh diverse you know things to do there and I wish I'd stayed there longer. I was only there for like four days just based on like how my flights worked out. But I would definitely love to go back in like the summer or something as well because uh, I was there in the winter. Okay. And is there any other places maybe you want to mention um, on a trip that we've not mentioned there? I guess the other kind of places that I went that were like notable trips were like I went to uh, Guatemala, Antigua, Guatemala, as well as Mexico oh. City. So that was nice really fun um that was like a quick trip i didn't spend too much time there uh but those were i really really loved mexico city i feel like it's super not well known from like like from an american perspective even though it's so close and really close it's yeah. so cosmopolitan so much good food so much to see so many museums like just so much to do i would love to go back soon and i don't know why more people don't visit it from the United States. It's like an amazing weekend trip or like a long weekend trip. It's cheap to get to from the US because I'm planning a trip yeah. to Mexico yeah. City in December. So maybe you can give me some tips. Uh, yeah, it's to about see, four but hours. 
yeah. from uh, most like major U.S. cities, and you can fly like without a connection from yeah, yeah. most major airports. So it's really really easy to get to, and it's, like just amazing like food and culture. And I feel like like if you really want to experience Mexican culture outside of going to Cancun or going to Cabo, like this is the place for you. And I really really want to go back um one day so i loved mexico city i did some country hopping around europe in uh april where i did like slovenia and croatia and a little bit of eastern europe like uh, north macedonia and bulgaria before i went to istanbul for a couple days and then and then june was my big southeast asia trip so i think we kind of hit upon most of the places, obviously, talking about all of them is like too much time. But yeah, uh, yeah. I feel like we talked about the big highlights. Yeah. Amazing trip. Amazing trip. I've got a little section here for like reflections on the trip. So we're going to talk maybe some things uh, about the trip that you experienced. And the first question I have is on the whole, you, were you trying to meet as many local people as possible? Maybe some free walking tours? Was that in your thinking? Yeah. So I did a lot of free walking tours. Um, I did a lot of like paid local experiences too, just cause you know, you are contributing to the local economy and it's an important thing to do as a tourist. So uh, a lot of paid local experiences and free local experiences and just trying to naturally meet local people if I could um, when they were open to. So definitely one of the goals uh, is to kind of see how other people live their lives across the country. So meeting local people is like the best way to do that, yeah. Okay. And this is a quite a big question. How was it to travel solo as a female? Uh, I know that's quite a big topic that needs to be discussed more. So w- what can you give in terms of your insight into your trip? Yeah, kind of like how I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, first, from the get go, the world is way more safe than you have been taught to think. Um, and I feel like for a lot of people, it's also you need to think about is your destination more dangerous or less dangerous than where you are coming from? Because there are a lot of places that, you know, like, yes, Saudi Arabia can have a bad human rights record, but they don't have like crime, like they don't have violent crime there. You're Hmm. very unlikely to go there and be like robbed or, you know, anything like that. So it's like, you kind of need to put into perspective, uh, I guess, danger and your perception of safety um and coming from new york city that is something that i've like thought a lot about as well it's like are a lot of these places like more dangerous than my home not necessarily so uh yeah that's like an interesting kind of thing to think about once you travel to a lot of or travel outside the country i suppose but on a whole i definitely received more help than danger i feel like people we're not like, oh my God, why are you here as a solo female traveler? Like it was more so like, we are happy to have you, even if you are a couple or a group or a solo traveler, like people are just always happy to see a foreigner and share their culture. And I feel like that is a common theme in so much of the world. And yeah, I, I just never felt like I was in real, real danger as a solo female traveler, um, as opposed to, I think that's what most people fear Uh, and what most what stops a lot of people from going but I think as long as you follow some common sense safety rules you're very likely to avoid most trouble and like if like if at all like all trouble yeah so basically generally advice is go even if 
you're going to have to go solo. Like if you're listening to this, um, don't be fearful. Maybe take some slight precautions, but maybe like a bit of research and go for it, I guess, is maybe the message here. Yeah, I mean, I, definitely you have to take small steps. Like I would not say go to Uzbekistan on your first solo trip. That <laughs> is bad advice. I would say, you know, go maybe a little bit outside of your hometown or go to a state nearby or then maybe go to, you know, somewhere that is very touristy like London or Paris where you know people are going to speak English. And then maybe you can start to go to Southeast Asia and things like that. So definitely like be smart about it. Do your research and you know take baby steps it is not like you don't need to go zero to a hundred in one night but again like things you can only get to a hundred or get to even like 50 or 20 by getting to step one so just you know you'll never know until you try i don't think when i was like you know 15 years old i was thinking that i would be traveling the world by myself but one thing led to another and now it's like the source of some of my best memories. So you never know until you try. You never really know until you just go. Awesome. And one last reflection. I guess you met loads of people, like just in general, traveling and in the same hostel or guest house. Like, I guess you've now got a nice little collection of new friends in the last six months. Yeah, yeah. So definitely a lot of different people, um, not just like local people, but also people that ended up being from literally like a few like, I guess, like a subway ride away. Like when I was in Dubai, I met a girl that, you know, lived in Brooklyn and we ended Mm. up becoming good friends and, you know, I got her number and stuff like that. And I ended up even some mutual friends that I kind of knew through my network of like, just like whatever social media, but they happened to be in Vietnam at the same time that I was taking a trip to Vietnam and we met up there. And now we both live in New York City and we can, you know, meet up now. So it's like a source of friends that, are local and also like like me and that I can have like friends stay friends with in my regular life so a lot of different friends uh, a source of like online friends as well people who have reached out to me about my travels just being like wow this is really cool like I would love to hear more about it and I'm in town on these days like we should meet up like just even like more so than the community that I gained like around the world is like the community of just people that are like-minded that I've kind of gained from sharing my stories and from sharing my travels has been one of the best parts I feel like of you know creating my Instagram account and writing my travelogue is just hearing people say oh my god I've never related to something more or oh my god like I love that I can talk to you about this and that we have the same thoughts on it like things like that I feel like have definitely made sharing my stories really really rewarding. Yeah, you've had an amazing reaction, I think, from what I've seen on mainly Instagram. Um, people like reaching out, they've got your book. Talk about your free book, your Far Wide and Solo ebook. Where can people find that? Yeah, so my Instagram is NYC to Nomad, uh, kind of a play on me living in New York City and going on this big six month nomadic trip. So you can find me on Instagram, and in the link is my free ebook called Far Wide and Solo, which is basically a collection of the biggest lessons and kind of most memorable stories that I have from my six month uh, solo trip around the world. So definitely can be used as inspiration, kind of a guide, uh, and just, I guess, a way to convince yourself to go and just take that trip. It's a really enjoyable read. So I would encourage people to listen to get hold of that. Um, We talked briefly about some of the countries and some of the stuff today, but there's more in there to, to read. So yeah, you guys should check it out. And there's one last question before we go into the last features to end the episode is what was it like coming back? 
back into reality? What's that like? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely been tough because I write about it at the end of my travel log, but you just are never quite the same after you travel so far and just experience so many different ways of life. Somehow you, when you come back to your previous way of life, you see it completely differently. Like some things that you thought were extremely important, you realize are not that important. And some things that you just never paid attention to, you realize you took for granted. And so I'm, de I'm definitely uh, still going through the transition because I've only been back in the U.S. for two weeks. So, yeah. but it's definitely been somewhat of an adjustment just to view my home and my home country uh, like this after having seen so many other countries in the world. So just I'm definitely hopeful, but also kind of, I guess, curious to see what happens in my home country and just in my general life as well, just trying to keep up with um, doing new things, because obviously the novelty of traveling to a new place every single day is uh, something that I loved and has, will always be a part of me. And kind of coming back to your daily routine is obviously very nice and comfortable, but you also lose out on that novelty every day. So just trying to explore, you know, my own home and like, Obviously, New York City is a great place to live if you want to do yeah. something every day. So just trying to uh, take advantage of all the stuff that there is to do in my hometown and uh, just trying to be intentional with the way that I you know, pursue hobbies and things like that is kind of what I'm trying to uh, keep on my mind and not just fall back into like a normal uh, routine like my previous one. Just be kind of mindful of the world around me. That's awesome. Okay, that's brilliant. We're now going to delve into some features that I do normally end the episode with. And we're going to go now to the generic, always uh, episode end feature, which is the travel question. So these are going to be like favorite things. I'm probably going to maybe cater more to the last six months. Hey, yeah, just a quick one before we carry on with the travel questions. I just want to say there are many ways to support this podcast. You can buy me a coffee and help support the podcast with $5. Or you can go to my merch store with the affiliate link with Public where there's plenty of merch available to buy, such as T-shirts, jumpers, hoodies, and also some children's clothing. Thirdly, which is free, you can also rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, or Good Pods. Also, you can find me on social media on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Simply just search for Winging It Travel Podcast, and you'll find me displaying all my social media content for traveling, podcasts, and other stuff. Thank you. It's travel question time. So let's go with, out of all the countries that you traveled to the last six months, what were your top three favorites? Argentina, uh, Malaysia, and Australia, which we didn't talk about. Oh. But it was, uh, yeah, I went to Australia for two weeks at the very, very end of my trip and was also one of my favorites. I could talk about it forever, but obviously we're going to run out of time. Damn. I love Australia. Oh, next time. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. And name three countries that you've not been to ever. They're now on your hit list. The next three that you want to go to. Um, probably Iran, South Africa, and Japan. Love that. Japan's an absolute must. Do you have a favorite beach? Favorite beach? Oh, man, that's hard. Uh, I think the beaches in Sri Lanka were beautiful. Um, and they were like just the right amount of like waves and sunsets. And yeah, I really like the beaches in Sri Lanka and the south, especially. 
Okay, and it sounds like you've been to a lot of cities. So I'll give you three here. Your top three favorite cities: Istanbul, London, probably Milan. Oh yeah, Milan. Yeah, cool. Do you drink coffee? I'm a big tea drinker. I will tea. drink coffee when yeah. it's like a, the thing to do there. Like in Melbourne, I drink coffee, but <laughs> I'm not like a I drink coffee every day type of person. No. Okay, let's go tea. Tea's fine. If you could pick one city in the world to drink tea and watch the world go by, where would you drink tea? And the second question is, what's your favorite type of tea? Uh, so where would I drink tea? Um, absolutely just Istanbul or like Turkey in general. They serve tea incessantly. And then I feel like lemon or like ginger tea is like my favorite. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. So that would be hard, actually. A favorite trek on the travels? Probably the 15-mile hike I did in Patagonia. Laguna de los Tres in the Argentine Patagonia. Um, just spectacular. <laughs> Okay. And what about a favorite party place that you might have experienced? Uh, probably Amsterdam. Oh, yeah. I can imagine that's pretty raucous. Uh, that's actually quite a popular answer, believe it or not. And what about a favorite landmark? It can be man-made or nature. I think, I don't know, like Batu Caves counts. It was one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're great. Yeah. Okay, Doke. What about a favorite cuisine that you've experienced? Anywhere like Middle Eastern food, like Turkish food. Uh, food in Saudi Arabia was amazing. I haven't been to like Lebanon, but I had a lot of Lebanese cuisine in yeah. uh, the UAE and it was just amazing. Yeah. Okay. What about a favorite, maybe high adrenaline activity? Scuba diving. I feel like I haven't done it enough, but I definitely want to do more of it. So mm-hmm. that, yeah. Yeah. Love that. Okay. And if you could pick one country in the world to live in that you've not lived in before, where would you live for a year or more? Australia, I think. Yeah. That is officially the right answer. <laughs> and did you have a favorite lake I feel like this is basic but lake como is really just oh, beautiful yeah classy yeah 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 uh what about on your travels this year maybe a country that was great value for money great i mean anywhere in southeast asia uh malaysia vietnam indonesia yeah okay and for a bit of an idea for budget what was the budget that maybe roughly you spent on your six-month trip probably anywhere from 15,000 on upwards. Yeah. US dollars. Yeah. Okay. And the last question, which I ask everyone on this podcast is if there's someone listening right now, who's maybe not sure about if they should go traveling or maybe it's scared, what words of wisdom can you give them to say, Hey, look, you got to go, go traveling now. I mean, my thing is always, it's better to go alone than to not go at all. It's better to, and you never know if you never go so those are probably the two things absolutely okay Vina, thanks for coming on the podcast and thanks for making time it's been a great chat thank you so much thank you it was great to kind of speak about all these countries that we have been to or haven't been to in common and yeah it was a really fun conversation yeah i've learned a lot thank you thank you for listening to my winging it travel podcast episode today you can find me on instagram at James Hammond Travel or Winging It Travel Podcast. You can search for both. I release weekly clips of this podcast episode as well as photos from the last 8 to 10 years of my travels. You can also follow me on TikTok, Facebook and Pinterest by searching Winging It Travel Podcast. I do release daily content to do with travel and the podcast throughout the week. Also check out my website jameshammond.org. There's content about myself, my travels And there's also a newsletter sign up as well as a contact form. Finally, please rate and review the podcast on Podchaser. This is my platform of choice. Alternatively, you can rate this on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from. 
This really helps the podcast gain a bit of traction for the future in terms of guests and content. And I'm glad to see that you guys are listening out there, reviewing it and enjoying the content so far. Stay safe, stay humble, keep listening, keep traveling, and I'll catch you soon. Cheers, James.